The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Infernal Death of Duke Voronoff, Episode 2. The hired car thudded along dirt roads, vibrating with every pebble. Elizabeth watched the fields scroll past her window, dead cornstalks poking through the white blankets, before each farm was lost behind a wall of scraggly trees. Elizabeth bundled herself into her new coat and watched her breath dissipate in the stifling back seat. Olga sat next to Elizabeth, and their shoulders pressed uncomfortably together. She wore a wool scarf, which was wrapped severely around her head. Her belt was thick, fastened tightly around her coat. She wore a leaden black dress and tough leather boots. Olga said nothing, her face screwed up in a metamorphic scowl. Elizabeth was warm, at least. She hadn't asked much of Natalia, other than a new winter coat, which the Duchess had eagerly procured. When Elizabeth admitted she didn't know anyone with a car, Natalia chartered a cab as well. Not exactly around the corner, is it? called the driver. He was a generic young man, average size and face, except for his ostentatious mustache. The pair of curled horns looked completely wrong on such a youthful lip, and Elizabeth spent much of the ride debating whether it was real. A dacha, murmured Elizabeth. Say again? The driver met her eyes in the rearview mirror. A dacha. It's what the Russians call their country homes. Is that what she is? asked the driver, tactlessly jabbing a thumb at Olga. One of them rusky ladies? What do they call them? Babushkas? Elizabeth felt Olga tense as she heard the familiar word. She scowled, then smacked her lips disapprovingly. Elizabeth couldn't blame her. The last thing an elder, unwed servant needed was to be called a grandmother, especially by a carefree American driver. Lots of them ruskies around town, he continued. Greeks, too. Funny-looking alphabet they've got. Ain't American, that's for sure. For a moment, Olga looked as if she might speak. She leaned forward, her coat bunching around her bosom. Then she pointed, past the driver's shoulder. Elizabeth crooked her neck, trying to see where the finger was aimed. Outside, the road looked as whitewashed as any other point in their journey. But Olga muttered some low syllables, and Elizabeth decided that this must be the place. Pull over here, will you? The youth turned his head toward them and grinned. Odd place for a pit stop, don't you think? Elizabeth rolled her eyes. I hope you're not expecting a tip. With this, the car meandered sideways, the wheels grinding in the unplowed bluffs. Before the driver could push his way out, Elizabeth had already opened her own door, and she offered a hand to the old servant. Unsurprisingly, Olga rejected it. She grunted as her boots sank into powder. The driver reached for the top of the car and untied the ropes that crisscrossed its roof. He pulled down a pair of small rucksacks, 
followed by two sets of skis. He dug into his pockets and drew a small block wrapped in paper. I waxed them up good, he said, but here's plenty extra in case they get sticky. Elizabeth nodded her gratitude, then pushed her boots into the skis' bindings. She pulled the leather belts over her toes and fastened the buckles tight. The driver handed her a pair of poles, which she jabbed firmly into the ground. When she looked up, Olga was similarly outfitted. The rucksack straps looped around her shoulders. She squinted balefully into the endless white, waiting for Elizabeth's command. All right, said the oncologist. Meet us tomorrow at noon. The driver furrowed his brow. You mean here? That's right. Well, okay, he said, peering down the road. But where are we, anyhow? Elizabeth pulled her scarf over her mouth and groped both poles. The leather grips felt good in her hands. Damned if I know, she said. Just be on time. And with that, she shoved herself forward, and the skis sliced into snow. Stride by stride, Elizabeth and Olga cut their way across the countryside. The landscape was a maze of leafless conifers and imperious evergreens. Between the nettled spires, brambles coiled like barbed wire, and fallen trunks were frozen in mid-decay. Now and again, Elizabeth would spot a stand of birches, which were always her favorite trees in winter, the way their black and white bark camouflaged them against the blank background. Her toes were numb, but the rest of Elizabeth felt good, warmed by the dance-like rhythm of their progress. She liked to watch her breath puff into the air, like a locomotive crawling slowly down the track. Olga said nothing, but she had clearly skied a great deal in her life. She moved with practiced aggression, jolt after jolt, and her nostrils flared with every advance. Her earthbound face had turned radish red, and although her skin had wrinkled with time, she showed the strength of any young biathlete. For once, Elizabeth wished she had studied some Russian, or even spent some time in the country. During her years abroad, she had briefly considered a train to St. Petersburg, but the war had ruined that desire, and by the time Elizabeth had strayed from the Occidental nations, the city had already been renamed. Every now and again, Olga would make a sound, and Elizabeth stopped. The woman pointed slightly to the left or right, and Elizabeth adjusted her skis. She marveled at Olga's sense of direction, the woman had been to the cabin many times over the years. She'd done household chores for Voronov, just as she did in their apartment. They'd weathered many winter nights together, sometimes for weeks at a time, and Olga knew his stomping grounds well. Even still, the woods all looked the same to Elizabeth. Without so much as a deer path to mark the way, each glen appeared like any other not to mention the lost time. Olga hadn't been to the cabin for at least a year. 
Then, Voronov started coming alone, leaving his maid behind. If Natalia was right, his solo trips began about the same time his mind started to slip. Yet Olga remembered the way. After an hour or so, Elizabeth stopped. She opened the rucksack and pulled out a field canteen. She drank thirstily, then held it out to Olga, but the old servant only sniffed. The very offer seemed to insult her Spartan sensibilities. Elizabeth took another draft, and then she slowly screwed the cap into place. When I was young, Elizabeth said. Then she stopped and pointed to herself. When I, she held a hand at waist level, was small. Olga blinked. I skied, Elizabeth pointed to her feet, with my mama. She paused, hoping the Russian word was close enough. Then Olga nodded. It was subtle, like a breeze nudging a small branch, but the woman seemed to acknowledge this anecdote. We would go to my grandparents' farm, Elizabeth went on, no longer caring whether Olga understood. We'd go sledding, of course, build snowmen. But it was the skiing I loved the most. My brother never had any patience for it. My sister always avoided going outside. But my mother, she loved to wander the backcountry, spent hours out there. The temperature never mattered, so long as she could catch a whiff of pine. The air was still, and the only sound was the tiny crunch of their own feet as the idle skis settled in the packed snow. At last, Olga cleared her throat, raised a hand, and gestured toward the canteen. Elizabeth reserved her smile. She handed the container to the older woman, who accepted a modest sip. It was nearly midday when Elizabeth spotted the cabin. She had expected something rustic, but the cabin was robust, well-built, like a hunting lodge of yore. The walls were made of logs, but they were expertly squared, held together with prim layers of mortar. The roof was composed of fine wood shingles, which weather had not yet grayed. The wood shutters were closed, and they were decorated with floral carvings. Most impressive was the stone chimney, which bulged endearingly toward the bottom. If Elizabeth had stumbled upon this villa in the Swiss Alps, she would have found it quaint, even a little luxurious. Even the front porch was well-constructed and big enough to host a bridge club. A sturdy awning loomed over the front doorway. A man was seated out front. He was tall, she could tell, even as he hunched over his rocking chair. His beard was profound, pouring from his face like newly shorn wool. Wisps of hair levitated over his scalp in the light breeze. The man wore only long underwear. The faded maroon fabric ruffled and sagged. There were stains from sloppily eaten food. The hems of his leggings were tucked into the pair of enormous boots, but otherwise his only garments were long johns. And there, 
spanned between his armrests, was a rifle. The rocker did not rock. His gaunt face did not flinch. Only his eyes tracked Elizabeth as she approached, a slow and unblinking gaze. The man might be mistaken for dead, if not for those penetrating pupils. Elizabeth slowed her pace, hoping not to alarm him. She studied the thick-barreled gun, held horizontally in two gnarled hands. She hadn't seen a Nitro Express in a long time, not since Africa, where they were known as elephant guns. Elizabeth situated herself in front of the cabin, then leaned against her poles. Afternoon, she said. Duke Varanov, I presume? The man's head fell back slightly, elongating his beard. He surveyed her in silence. Finally, she added, My name is Elizabeth Crown. Your daughter sent me. Glacially, the old man pressed his hands into the rifle and stood up. He was every bit as mountainous as Elizabeth had assumed, his figure both svelte and solid. He groped the weapon, then let its butt fall sideways, thudding against the porch's planks. Come in, he intoned. Elizabeth hesitated. Should she just follow a strange man into his isolated home? Why was he wearing only his skivvies, especially in this weather? Everything was wrong about this picture. She didn't like the gun, the atmosphere, the lack of words. And yet, when Voronov opened the door, she took a breath and unbuckled her feet. Olga lingered behind, taking time to shake her skis loose. As she crossed the threshold, Elizabeth wondered how batty the man really was. Folks did all kinds of strange things once they wandered into the woods alone. Was this really madness, or the eccentricity of a man too old to care? True to its exterior, the cabin was a homey little abode. Oriental rugs were spread on the sanded wood floors, and the one wall was lined with well-packed bookshelves. A teapot gurgled on the iron stove, and finely crafted chairs were arranged around a table, as if for company. In the center of the main room hung a chandelier, fashioned from interlocking deer antlers. The wreath was punctuated with candles, half-melted in their metal fixtures. Tea, asked Voronov as he poured water into a mug. Don't mind if I do, said Elizabeth, removing her gloves. The cabin was surprisingly balmy, thanks to the stove, and Elizabeth felt herself flush. Voronov handed her a steel mug, then pointed toward the furniture. Steam curled from the dark liquid as they seated themselves in opposite chairs, and Elizabeth allowed the rucksack to slip from her tender shoulders and onto the rug. For a moment, Elizabeth lost track of Olga, but then she spotted the old servant, standing in the corner, as stony as a gargoyle. "'My daughter,' said Voronov. His voice was distant, as if recalling a long-forgotten memory. "'How do you know her?' "'She hired me,' said Elizabeth." 
She sipped the bitter beverage and suppressed her desire to wince. She wanted me to find you. She's worried, and she wants you to come back. The old man's eyes meandered. He seemed to have already lost interest in the conversation. Elizabeth waited, but the man declined to move. He looked like he might root himself in that chair, unspeaking. Only a few minutes had passed, yet Elizabeth sensed his indifference. She set down the tea and clasped her hands. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Voronov's eyes widened. He turned to her, as if noticing Elizabeth for the first time. His head rotated sideways, a cautious expression. That's what you wrote in your journal, isn't it? The phrase you repeated so many times. Voronov eyed her, but his lips betrayed no intention to speak. I'm guessing, said Elizabeth, that Natalia is no student of literature. She didn't recognize the phrase, or else she would have known how to translate it. But I know Dante backward and forward. You were quoting the Inferno. Now it was Voronov who placed his mug on the table. He raised his hands prayerfully before his lips. His eyes met Elizabeth's. Only now did she see how roomy and bloodshot they were. He looked sick with insomnia, yet somehow calm, alert. Decades of instinct had threaded themselves into those pale irises. When Dante wrote about the gates of hell, continued Elizabeth, he spoke of a guardian. She swallowed, waiting for a response. When none came, she said, For months you repeated a Russian word, Cerber. Natalia didn't know what that meant, but I think I do. You were talking about the Cerberus. Voronov's hands dropped to his lap, but his head did not move. His body was stock still. Elizabeth wondered if the man was even breathing. So this leads me to wonder, Lord Voronov, said Elizabeth. I don't know much about the afterlife, so I can't say whether a hellhound guards the gates of the underworld or not. But if there's a hunter alive who could find a three-headed dog, I'd put my money on you. The old man raised his bushy eyebrows. It was his first real expression, the first sign of inner life. Then he raised a finger to his temple and said, You are a very clever girl, Miss Crown. I'm glad to hear that, Elizabeth replied. If only for your daughter's sake. She's frightened for you. In fact, she thinks you've lost your marbles. Now the old man smiled. The shape of his lips was crooked, unpracticed. The smile was nearly lost in the fluff of his beard. Elizabeth couldn't read its purpose. Was he amused? Was she winning him over? Then again, did it matter? Would a true madman accept the notion that he was mad? You take interest in such things, he murmured. Elizabeth simpered. Mythical creatures? Yes, you might call it my stock and trade. Suddenly, Voronov stood up. He sauntered toward the doorway into what Elizabeth presumed was the bedroom. She felt the pang of alarm. 
Voronov's aged limbs moved with the swiftness of a much younger man, and he absconded without a word. She glanced at Olga, but the woman's face was still illegible. Elizabeth rose and took a few steps, inching her way to the bedroom door. Beyond, she saw a wide bed covered in thick blankets. The stuffed head of a bison gazed at her from the opposite wall. Voronov stepped back into view, his head swallowed in a tan sweater. He had already hitched up a pair of thick trousers, and he yanked the wool turtleneck over his face. Now that the old man was dressed, he looked formidable, like a true hunter. He reached to his nightstand and grabbed a brown deer stalker, which he expertly affixed over his ears. Then he looked at Elizabeth. I will tell you a story, Voronov said. I used to know a farmer. He lived nearby. He raised cattle for milking. Voronov abruptly marched forward. Elizabeth turned sideways, allowing the Russian to pass. As he moved into the den, Voronov continued. One morning, he found his cows were slaughtered, torn to pieces, devoured from the inside. The door to his barn only splinters. No animal could do this. Not a bear or a wild cat. Something else. Something monstrous. Voronov reached a heavy-looking chest, which stood in the corner of the room. He flipped back the iron clasp and lifted the lid, then rooted around inside. Invisible objects clanked and tinkled as his hand searched the contents of the chest, until he pulled out a coil of hemp rope. He stopped, crushing the rope in his fist. Some of the cows survived, but he thought perhaps the creature would return. The very next evening, when the sun began to set, he took his rifle and positioned himself in the shadows of the barn. He waited. And then, sometime past midnight, it came. Voronov chuckled. His chuckle was low and bitter. He looked away toward the moisture-dotted windows. He was a fool, said Voronov. I was fond of this man. There is no one I respect more than a farmer. Such quiet dignity, these men who feed the world. But he was no hunter. He thought he could kill a creature of such size and strength with a 22 caliber rifle. Such a weapon is nothing. It can hardly kill a squirrel. Did he run away? asked Elizabeth, when he realized he was outmatched. Voronov shook his head morosely. He never had the chance. When he was found, his body was slashed to ribbons. Claws, teeth, they tore the skin away. And yet, he was alive. Alive, Elizabeth exclaimed. For three days he lived in mortal agony. A doctor came to him, treated his wounds, injected him with morphine. But the pain, it was too much for him. Or anyone. Did he say what happened? Elizabeth murmured. Did he describe what he saw? Oh, yes, replied Voronov. 
Elizabeth felt a chill run through her. His tone was strange, the way he said, oh yes. It wasn't confirmation. It wasn't curiosity. It was excitement. Voronov's eyes blazed. The rope whined in his chokehold. He looked even larger than before, not merely tall, not only powerful. He was unhinged. Elizabeth didn't like his proximity. All of a sudden, she wondered where he'd placed the elephant gun. She scanned the room until she saw the weapon leaning against the wall, just a few feet from the unmoving Olga. Could she even trust Olga? What would she do if the man cracked? Would she defend her master, the man who had shipped her across the ocean, saved her from the revolution? Or would she try to calm him, restrain him? What was that woman thinking as she stood stolidly in the corner, hearing a conversation she couldn't understand? What did she assume was happening? But even if it's true, whispered Elizabeth, and there is such a thing as a Cerberus, or at least something like it, why would it suddenly come here, to the Pennsylvania woods? Why hasn't anyone seen it before? Surely someone would have shot it by now, just like the wolves. Ah, bellowed Voronov, why indeed? How intelligent you seem, Miss Crown. I suspect you have read a great many books. But to know the way of animals, you cannot learn this in a library. Then maybe you'll enlighten me, said Elizabeth, keeping her voice steady and her eyes on the front door. She didn't care for his growing zeal. The room felt stifling. She considered her rucksack, which she had left next to the chair. Inside, she had packed her grandfather's Colt 45. The revolver was loaded and ready, but Voronov now stood in the center of the room. She would have to get past him. And what chance did she stand against a world-famous marksman inside his own living room? Man is responsible, proclaimed Voronov, his voice triumphant. Man has changed the world. Do we not build roads and dams? Do we not erect our fences, our telephone lines? And what room is left for the wild beast? He is confused. He cannot roam free. He does not recognize the grounds that he has hunted for a hundred thousand years. We kill his prey. We starve him until he is forced to find new land. Everywhere I have seen this. The rhinoceros, the buffalo, strangled by our civilization. Once the wild beast was king. Now he is a beggar. Perhaps the Cerber traveled a thousand leagues to find this barn, to feast upon these cows and to kill a simple farmer. It is revenge for everything we have taken from him. So, supposing it's real, Elizabeth interrupted. Supposing there's some hellhound out there, what do you plan to do? Catch it? Put it in a zoo? No, growled Voronov. I will slay the Cerberus. I will kill it where it stands. I shall become its angel of mercy, and I shall turn its three heads into my trophies. 
how noble it shall appear, how magnificent. That has always been my purpose, to create monuments before a creature has gone forever. Do you not see? This is what the hunter has become, the archivist of extinction. Elizabeth had heard enough. She wanted to leave now. She had enough to report to Natalia. For once, she felt no tug of curiosity. Maybe there was an ancient monster prowling in the woods, or maybe the man was truly insane. But she had no intention to stay in this cabin, not with a trained killer. Elizabeth sidestepped toward the doorway. As ever, Olga stood as still as a sentry. She hadn't moved an inch from the wall. Oh well then, Elizabeth said hoarsely. I'll just plan to let your daughter know. She's expecting me in the morning, so I, I should be off. When can she expect you back? Voronov swiveled toward Elizabeth. His eyes flamed. His shoulders rose and fell with his breaths. They faced each other in the small den, and Elizabeth could feel herself retreat. The heat of the wood stove intensified. She looked sideways and saw the kitchen area, a simple wood counter, a sink, a bucket of water. Above her loomed a row of cupboards, but she saw no cutlery, no utensils, not even a fire poker. There was nothing she could improvise into a weapon as she had long ago been taught to do. The kitchenette was bare, useless. Voronov sprang, but not toward Elizabeth. He whirled away, past the dining table, toward the front door. His arm reared back, his hand launched forward, his fist smashed into Olga's face. The servant flew back against the wall, her head knocked sideways, her eyes squeezed shut. She slid down the mortared logs, then slumped to one side. Blood spouted from her broken nose. Elizabeth stood there, frozen. She tried to move her feet, but they stuck fast. Her eyes fixed on the crumpled body on the floor. The old woman had looked so stalwart, but she was no match for the hunter's roundhouse. And then, just when her muscles started to thaw, Elizabeth watched Voronov saunter to the door and pick up the elephant gun. He cradled it casually, as if preparing for a stroll. It took Elizabeth a moment to realize that the muzzle was aimed at her. Voronov threw out a hand, tossing an object into the air. Elizabeth jerked back, and then she saw the bundle of rope lying on the floor. And now, snarled Voronov, it is time for you to assist me, Miss Crown. You've been listening to The Infernal Death of Duke Voronov. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Backpack Media, LLC, with music by Naoya Sakamata, Sixamatic, and Eric Satie. For more information about the exciting world of uncanology, please visit elizabethcrown.net.